Hi. I'm uh, Mike McCarg. The internet calls me Science Mike, which is uh, at least a little ridiculous. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with my work. Most people are not. Uh, so I get it if you're like, who is this guy? Why is he on stage? And I don't want you to get the wrong ideas about me because uh, the, the, the title Science Mike literally thrust upon me at a party where I was answering science questions that then stuck and replaced my actual identity may give you faulty assumptions. Number one, you might think I'm a scientist. I am not a scientist. Uh, my relationship to science is the same relationship like a football super fan has to football. They don't play football, they just love the game, they watch it a lot, they know the players. That's me in science, okay? You might think that, uh, you know, I have great academic qualifications. I did go to community college for six weeks. Uh, it's a really good time. You might think because I talk about science and religion that I am uh, like an ordained pastor. No. Uh, so why on earth would I be here at an institution of higher learning talking about God and prayer and science? Well, in the words of the great philosopher Two Chains, in his collaboration with Chance the Rapper, School of Hard Knocks, I took night classes. Uh, that's a real quote, you can hear it on that record. So, the whole idea here is I grew up evangelical. Any evangelicals in the house, what, what? Um, I was a Southern Baptist. I was deeply, deeply into that culture. I wasn't a rebellious Southern Baptist. I was a proud Southern Baptist. It all worked really well until as an, athe as an adult, I became an atheist, an atheist for several years, uh, which was like a lot of fun for my family. They really enjoyed that. And uh, then I had this crazy mystical experience where I felt like I was in the presence of God and that was so powerful and so moving that I became convinced that I had brain cancer and I got a CAT scan to see what tumor was making me hear God's voice and see a bright light. When the CAT scan came back clear, I had a real problem because I was an atheist who had encountered God. And that led me on this search to figure out if there's anything to this whole God thing. And I did that mainly by studying cosmology, particle physics, and brain science. And so what we're gonna talk about this morning is mainly the brain science stuff as it relates to prayer. And I think that is an incredibly useful thing to do today. Because it probably nobody in this room, but in many places, uh, there are folks who wonder if prayer does anything, or if God is listening, or when they pray, they feel like an adult standing in line to see Santa Claus. It just kind of, that's, just imagine it. Just picture it for a second. In the mall, it's always a mall these days, right? God bless America. Uh, you've got this little winter village. You've got a, a guy making a little bit better than minimum wage with very minty breath, you know, like mint schnapps breath, sitting in a chair. 
and this line of children waiting to like tell their dreams and their, what they desire most in the world to a stranger with a nice fluffy beard, sometimes it's real. And just imagine like kid, 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 me, kid, kid, kid. Like how do I feel standing in that line? Like I'm not with a child. It's just when I get to the end of the line, I'm going to lower 230 pounds of science mic onto a stranger's knee and say, I kind of want a pony. Like, it's a weird image, and it's how a lot of people feel about praying today. It's uncomfortable. It's strange. It's an ancient ritual, but a lot of us can't get away from it. And... Well, we'll talk about some more of the philosophical stuff about prayer in a second, but post-atheism, like as I was rebuilding my faith, prayer was tough. Prayer was tough. I could get behind, like, God as something that creates the universe and something that holds the universe together. But God that answers to prayer is problematic. It's deeply problematic because if God answers my prayer for a promotion at work or a nice parking spot or whatever it is that we in the West pray for, maybe, maybe something more serious, maybe relationship problems, maybe illness, if God hears in response to that prayer and I rejoice for that and I tell everyone I know God is a God who answers prayer, and someone else's loved one has cancer in their 30s, and everyone prays with sincerity, what do you say about prayer when that person dies? What do you do as this came into my email inbox from a pastor who started a prayer chain for a six-year-old with lung disease? who had 5,000 people praying for her 24 hours a day in an organized manner. What do those 5,000 people do when that child dies? What does that say about prayer? So I got to the point in my life where I could pray, but I couldn't ask God for anything. I just saw prayer as a way of connecting with God's presence, of allowing myself to be transformed as I believe God wanted me to be transformed. I believe that if I prayed for the hungry, God's response would be, share your food. And I got a call one day. I was writing my book. It's in bookstores everywhere. Uh, I gave it five stars on Goodreads. And... Um, <laughs> I really did give my book five stars on Goodreads. Um, so this pisses me off. If you, if you rate your own book on Goodreads, like Goodreads like puts author review next to review so people aren't duped. So then I wrote a review for the book that said, uh, it's easily the best book I've ever written, which I just thought was hilarious. So. So I'm writing that book and I get a phone call. I'm writing the chapter about prayer, working through my 
contradictions of prayer for audiences. And the phone rings. And when I write, I keep my phone off. So someone tried to reach me, couldn't reach me, called the house phone. By the way, how dare they? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Like, people call you. What? That shouldn't be a thing. So my wife answers the phone. She said, he's writing right now, which is good. That's what she's supposed to say. Leave him alone. I'm a writer. We're delicate, right? So uh, she brings me the phone, and I'm like, the unmitigated gall. You've come into my sanctuary, my sacred time of maximal creativity with a phone. And she hands me the phone. I say, hello. And it's like a guy from a church we used to go to who I haven't talked to in like eight years and never knew that well. Yeah, how are you? Oh, I'm good, but uh, I didn't call to catch up. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you need to come to Orlando right now. Uh, yeah, I got a lot to do. I don't think Orlando's in the cards today. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's good to talk to you. Well, your dad just had a major stroke, and we're not sure if he's going to make it. My dad had a, he was giving a talk, he sat down, the next person went up, and he slumped over on a table, dropped his pen. Luckily, there were two doctors in the room, immediately diagnosed a stroke. He's on the way to the hospital right now in an ambulance, and we're not sure how long he's going to last. Called my mom, dad's ex-wife, and we got in a car. We started driving to Orlando. And what did we do? I started to pray. I started to ask God to help my dad. And I knew there were really strange, logical, and philosophical contradictions to such a notion. But in that moment, I was so powerless. I was so helpless. And this act of praying was, for me, an act of surrender. It was an admission that there's nothing I could do. And I, I got to Orlando and Oh, I, I am such like a nerd. I'm just like a computer programming, video game loving, science fiction reading nerd. And my dad, he played football. Uh, he played on offense. Sometimes he was the quarterback. But he also played defense. So he would like, like run off the field and run back on the field. And then at halftime, he would take off his football uniform. I don't really know what you call them. Like the stuff people wear to play football. He would take that stuff off, and he would put on a band uniform, and he would march and play the trumpet. And then he would run back and then change back into his football clothes, whatever you call them, and then ask the coach what the halftime strategy adjustment was, 
and then run back on the field and play offense and defense. Like he's, he's like a superhero. And I, I walk in the room, <laughs> and the left side of his body is, is paralyzed, and the right side of his face is etched in pain. Now, I want to be clear. My dad once was driving a tractor, and it ran over a tree, and the tree jumped up and stabbed him through his abdomen with a branch the size of my arm, entered and exited. He put the tractor in reverse, pulled the tree out of his body, packed his wounds with shop towels, duct taped it, and drove to the hospital. When a nurse pulled off the duct tape, she fainted. So like my dad, that's a true story. My dad is tough. So to see his face, see what I'm doing? Like I'm alternating you between like laughing and somber, which is incredibly emotionally manipulative, but super effective. So we take half his face paralyzed, half his face with an overt expression of intense misery and agony. And I reached out and I took my dad's good hand and old school, I put my knees on the floor and I started to pray and I wept. So I don't know where you are with prayer, but if you're here this morning and God feels distant, if you're here this morning and prayer doesn't make sense, I want to throw you a bone using science. Because we all trust science, right? That's who we are. We're post-enlightenment Westerners. Our epistemology is empiricism for the win. We build iPhones. We go to Mars. Hashtag science works. So I have found it. I know I am a super nerd. I really am. Like it's not appropriate for me to speak in modern vernacular because I don't keep up with it. So I just murder it. Uh, but it, it's, also, it's kind of funny you get to laugh at me. It's okay. Um, so what does science say to have prayer? First of all, this kind of freaks me out. These are uh, statistics gathered by social scientists. In America, 76% of people believe in the power of prayer. 76%. That's a little higher than goes to church on Sunday mornings. That's, a little, that's much higher than identifies as Christian anymore. Um, that's higher than identifies with any specific religious tradition. 62% pray regularly. Of those who pray, 74% pray mostly about their personal challenges. Now, this is what interests me. This is what interests me. Of the 62% of people who pray regularly, 56% of them believe that most or all of their prayers are answered. That blows me away. More than half of the people who pray are like, yep, totally works, no contradiction. <laughs> 37% said that only some of their prayers are answered. And 14% say, gosh, I don't know. I don't know what prayer does. I don't know if it works, but I still do it. Let's talk about the brain. Any uh, brain anatomy experts in the room? 
Neuroscience background, biology, focusing on the brain. Anybody? Oh, good. Nobody's here to keep me honest. Okay, if I make it up, you won't know. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I can actually, uh, I've come across a really good exercise designed by a neuroscientist that will help you understand the brain's anatomy really quick in order to facilitate the discussion. So everybody hold your hand out like this. This is kinesthetic for our different learners. Come on, jaded college students, everybody hold your hand out like this. Okay. Now, I want you to take an imaginary walnut. You know what a walnut looks like? So about the size, the wrinkliness of a walnut. Now I want you to imagine that walnut is made of flesh and kind of squishy. Ugh. Set it right here. That is your thalamus. That's the brain's grand central station. It sits right on top of the brain stem, above the basal ganglia, and it is very, very often disproportionately involved in the communication between any two different parts of the brain, your thalamus. Because of its unique role in routing information, neuroscientists say that your sense of self emerges from your thalamus. Okay, now take an almond. You know what an almond looks like. Same deal as before, this almond is squishy and kind of pink. Break it in half. Put one half here and one half here. Don't eat it, you need it, because it is your amygdala. The amygdala is the response, the part of the brain that coordinates fear and anger. It's the most powerful emotions in the human brain. Fear and anger when, here's how I know, if you're driving and you are listening to your jam. You know what I'm talking about. You're in the car and things are good and the beat is right and you are feeling it and you're, you're like not super into traffic. You might not know how many car lengths you are behind the car in front of you, but whatever, it's a good day. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a car invades your space. No blinker. You've got your jam and this son of a person just merges right over and cuts you off. And the good vibes happening in other parts of your brain get knocked aside by your amygdala who before your conscious mind can make any decision sends a very clear message to the other driver that they are number one, right? That is your amygdala at work. And it's responsible, the reason fear and anger are so powerful, uh, pre-civilization, getting angry or afraid was a great way to survive, right? Now, roll your hand up like this and bring it at a 90 degree angle to your wrist. This is your brain's limbic system. This is your rat brain. This is where you get all your cravings from. This is the part of your brain that's really into pizza. Um, my limbic system is powerful. Uh, this would be your spinal column. This is about the size of your limbic system. However, the size your fist is, that's pretty close to the size of your limbic system. Over here, kind of by your thumb, around front, over to here, would be your anterior cingulate cortex, my favorite part of the brain. It's where compassion and empathy live. Okay? So, well, I don't want to, I'll save that joke for later. It's a really good one. Okay, so. <laughs> now I want you to take four sheets of tissue paper. Imagine, we're almost done. Four sheets of magic, crinkle them up. Then wrap the tissue paper around your fist. That would be your neocortex. That's the part of your brain where A, more than half your neurons are, and B, is responsible for the stuff that makes you 
more like a human and less like a rat. The neocortex gives you language, art, culture, uh, 3D spatial awareness, an incredible capacity to process what you see. We're a visual species, that all happens back here, this part of the brain. Really up a little bit, motor motions here, visions here. Um, and then up front behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. That's focus, concentration, agency. That's like where your, your pilot lives, okay? That's what you most associate with you. You can sit your hands down now. One last point right here is your orbitofrontal cortex. You, remember the brain's in two hemispheres, so you have two. Anytime you have two of something in the brain, we call it a singular thing, because why not? So your prefrontal cortex, among many other things, is obsessed with predicting the future. Your prefrontal cortex is why you daydream a third of the time. It's why a third of you right now are not paying attention. Some of you are imagining what would happen if I passed out on stage and you had to walk up and give the rest of the talk, right? In a room this size, at least one person is thinking that. And here's why. Your prefrontal cortex wants to make sure you're prepared for anything. It does that by guessing about the future, and you feel good when you predict correctly what will happen in the future. That's why the prefrontal cortex is also responsible for ethical calculations and decisions. A little, a little piece of trivia that has nothing to do with prayer that I just found fascinating. Your prefrontal cortex, once you hit puberty, does not grow as fast as the rest of the brain. So your ability to forecast the consequences of decisions is radically diminished once you hit puberty. In women, the orbitofrontal cortex fully develops again and gets in a proper pr proportion to the rest of the brain somewhere between 18 and 22. In men, the orbitofrontal cortex reaches its adult volume sometime between 22 and 26. The only reason I wanted to tell you that is dating will make sense. <laughs> when you understand men's brains literally reach neurological maturity four years later than women's. Uh, it's also, by the way, why we love to make 18-year-olds soldiers. Because if you take an 18-year-old male full of testosterone and you say, for the glory of our people, storm that hill, 18-year-olds will go, ah! <laughs> and if soldiers were 35 and you said, for the glory of our people, storm that hill, the 35-year-old will go, the hill is steep. <laughs> There's a machine gun at the top of it. <laughs> What's in it for me? Like the prefrontal cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex will subvert being a good soldier as you get older. I, our brains are responsible for so much of how we see the world and how we relate to the world, and that has to do with prayer, because here's the freaky thing, skeptics. Brain science really validates prayer as a discipline. So, in terms of brain health, the most beneficial thing you can do for yourself is physical exercise. But let's be honest, who wants to do that? <laughs> like, you gotta go outside, 
for it to work, you've got to do like 30 minutes a day, six days a week. Are you kidding me? Who has that kind of time I've got tweeting to do? So physical exercise <laughs> is out, right? The next most beneficial thing you do for your brain is reading. Well, you've got to have like a book. <laughs> so you have to carry a Kindle or book. Come on. Now, I'll be honest. I do love to read. Uh, but you can't read all the time. You can't read and drive. I mean, some people do. It's a real bad call. So after physical exercise and reading, a very, very close third in terms of brain health is prayer and meditation. And what science has to tell us about prayer and meditation is incredible. Number one, less stress. Number two, lower blood pressure. Number three, a reduced response to stimulus in your amygdala. You become less angry less often. People who pray at least 30 minutes a day, six times a week, or meditate, their anterior cingulate cortex on a brain scan becomes richer and thicker. They neurologically become more compassionate empathetic people, which is why I say, like, Jesus doesn't live in my heart because the heart is a pump and it just moves blood. Jesus lives in my anterior cingulate cortex, right? <laughs> that was the joke I was going to do earlier. I'm super proud of it. <laughs> Probably be a t-shirt at some point. Here's what's also interesting. People who pray often, their prefrontal cortex experiences the same Riching and thickening as their anterior cingulate cortex, they get better focus and concentration. Now, here's what's interesting. People with dementia who pray regularly, in many studies, prayer has a therapeutic effect on dementia. That's the kind of brain health benefit we're talking about. Now, that's the brain health stuff, but if you're a person of faith, what does prayer have to offer you? Studies have shown consistently that if you ask someone to pray for eight weeks, and at the beginning of eight weeks, you ask them to score how close they feel to God, which by the way, atheists say zero, right? And atheists have been in these studies. But you ask people to score how close they feel to God. You ask people to pray for eight weeks, and at the end of that process, everybody's score moves usually by a quartile, which is a lot. And this includes atheists. So it's, it's really strange because at the beginning of eight weeks, the atheist, how do you identify yourself religiously? I am an atheist. At the end of eight weeks, how do you identify yourself religiously? I'm an atheist. How close do you feel to God? Zero. How close do you feel to God? 25 out of 100. That's real weird. That's not logically consistent. To feel close to a God you don't believe exists. But if you take a Christian or a person of faith who might have said 25, now they're at 50 or 60 or 65. They feel much closer to God. Most people when they report closest to God feeling are usually close to the halfway point or a little north. And a, a quartile movement there gets them north of 75 out of 100 in their subjective feeling of closeness to God. So what science tells us is praying often is one of the most powerful ways to make yourself feel 
close to God, to experience God's presence. And that's all cool, but here's the problem. A lot of us have no idea how to pray anymore. So, I thought to close this morning, I'd give you just a quick overview of some different types of prayer strategies and meditation that have been validated by science. The most basic form of prayer is just talking to God. Now, if you've never done this, it feels incredibly strange to just start talking and no one's there. To get the most scientific benefit, this is not a theological claim, this is a scientific claim, to get the most neurological benefit from that type of prayer, you should talk to God about your hopes, your dreams, and your fears with an emphasis on God's love for you. Those are the four ingredients for neurologically effective prayer of the traditional type, talking to God. Now, some people say, I I don't know what to say to God. I don't know what to say with my friends. I'm an introvert. I can't just like talk my way through faith. Well, there's another form of prayer called centering prayer. It's an ancient Christian practice, and it's effectively Christian meditation, where our goal is not to speak with God, but to be in God's presence. Centering prayer begins with an awareness. Most of the time, we're on autopilot. We're floating through the day. We're completely out of touch with the entirety of ourselves. And here's what I mean. The whole time I've been talking, I bet 100% of the room forgot they have eyelids. You just like blink automatically. You don't even think about it. But as soon as I mention you have eyelids and you blink, you start to have conscious control over your eyelids. And you start blinking more frequently and it starts freaking you out. And like you can't stop blinking, right? Because now you're aware that you have eyelids. Well, the whole time I've been here, you forgot you had a tongue. And as soon as I say you have a tongue, there's like a slimy thing in your mouth and you can't figure out where it's supposed to sit because you keep feeling your teeth, right? That's just our eyes and our mouth. We ignore our whole bodies, our whole experience. And in centering prayer, our goal is to stop ignoring ourselves and to be present, but not really with our eyes or our tongues. You usually start with your breath in centering prayer. So the same attention and awareness you just gave your eyelids and your tongue, you would give to your breath. You'd find a still spot. You'd put your phone on airplane mode because nothing wrecks prayer's neurological benefits like, uh, uh, right, it just doesn't help. But you sit and you start to just focus on your breath. And when you start to focus on your breath, weird stuff happens if you sit still because you never sit still. Your body rebels. You get one itch, then two itches, then your whole body itches, right? Uh, You start hearing things you didn't hear in your apartment or dorm before. And then once you learn to kind of return your attention to your breath against those things, now your brain, your monkey brain really starts to freak out because it's still, and it's like, hey, finals are coming. We got to handle finals. Does dad love me? Like just all these weird thoughts start coming into your mind. And your goal is to what? Acknowledge those thoughts and then just let them go. You don't control your thoughts. You just 
let them go, and you return your attention to your breath. That's the foundation of centering prayer. Just do that for a couple weeks, five minutes a day. That's all I ask. Once you've learned to put your attention on your breath, now you're ready to do actual centering prayer where you instead rest your attention on a word or image related to God, love, peace, hope, compassion, and you sit in God's presence and let it change you. You're not listening to God. You're not waiting for a message with God. It's like if you ever had a friend that you're so close with, it's nice to just ride down the road and not say anything. It's that same energy you're looking for in centering prayer, but with God. Now, some people would say, I don't know what to say to God, and I don't know how to not say anything in centering prayer, so I guess prayer's not for me. There's a third type of prayer that's super easy. It's called the Lexio Divinia. It's called the divine reading. You take your Bible, you pick a small passage, you read it three times. The first time you read it, you look for words or images that kind of reach out to you. The second time, you focus on those words and images and what they may be trying to say to you specifically. And the third time, you think how they are calling you to action. All three of those prayer strategies, basic prayer, centering prayer, and the Lexio Divinia, have the same neurological benefits. All three make you feel closer to God. Now, if you're not a praying person, and I tell you that science says the most effective prayer schedule is 30 minutes a day, six times a week, and you try to do that starting tomorrow, you will fail. You're not ready. It would be like somebody who mainly watches Netflix in their spare time deciding, you know what? I'm going to run a marathon next month. It's a terrible idea. Your body hasn't been conditioned for it. So I would say, set as a goal for yourself, five minutes of prayer a day every other day. And then move to every day. And then every week, maybe add three to five minutes until you reach 30 minutes of prayer. And try all three prayer strategies to see the ones that most help you to experience God. Now, you may have noticed something about what I just said. I didn't answer any of the philosophical or logical quandaries that intercessory prayer offers us. I can't. I have not met anyone who can in a satisfying way. And I believe strongly that this is the difference between understanding the world through faith and through science. In science, we trust only that which we can demonstrate with evidence, which is quite wise. But in faith, sometimes we lean into things that we don't understand. And for those of us who understand the world through science, that seems kind of dumb. But what we've discovered through science is leaning into that mystery is good for your brain. It makes you feel closer to God. And somehow, in a great mystery, when we reach out to God through prayer, God reaches 